and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning, as we can hear, continue through this letter to the Hebrews, we will hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon him once again in prayer. Our merciful Father, we have great need of endurance. For we confess that often this Christian life is harder and more challenging than we would have imagined. You have ordained various trials in our lives, and we grow weary and faint. So I ask that as we hear your word to us this morning, that you would strengthen us that you would fortify us, and that you would give us the grace that we need to keep running and fighting by faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God to you. This past week, we had uh, some family visiting with us. One of my sisters-in-law and her husband were spending a few days with us, and my sister-in-law is often, as she is right now, training to run marathons. She was a cross-country runner in high school and in college, and she continues to travel around the country and run various marathons. So every morning, she would wake up early and she would go for a long run. She is very regimented in how she trains because she not only needs to build up speed, she needs to build endurance. And I would wake up every morning and just say, go have fun because I will never train for a marathon because that is not appealing to me in the slightest. But you need endurance to compete in and finish a marathon because there are always points in the race when you are in pain, when you are exhausted, when your legs threaten to give out and you struggle to breathe. And so those who are finish, who finish are those who are able to press through that pain and endure the hardship. If you do not have endurance, you will either give up or you will collapse along the way. 
And of all the races that there are, the Christian life is most like a marathon. This is not a hundred meter dash. And so every Christian has need of endurance. You need the ability to press through the pain of persecution and affliction. You need the strength and ability to suffer and not give up. This was one of the reasons that this letter was written to the Hebrews. The author writes to and reminds his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you have need of endurance. They needed endurance because they were in danger of giving up, as we've seen, of throwing in the towel, because the race was a lot longer and the fight was a lot harder than they expected. I wonder if you ever feel that way. Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you feel like that seed that was planted on the rocky ground that immediately sprang up with joy as it heard the sound of the gospel. But then that joy has begun to shrink and wither as the sorrows and trials and persecutions that inevitably come in this world build up and you begin to wonder whether you can keep going. Maybe you wonder if you even want to keep going and you are questioning in your own heart Is this worth it? If you don't feel that way now, maybe you have in the past, and I think I can safely promise you, you probably will feel that way one day in the future. So Christian, I want you to listen carefully to God's word this morning, for the God of all comfort is speaking to you so that you might have strength to endure affliction and to keep running the race of the Christian life. You have need of endurance. So as we hear God's word together this morning, I'm going to do my best to help you understand one of the enemies that you face for your endurance, which is the fear of suffering, and the key to your endurance, which I believe is possessing an otherworldly joy. That key will be my main focus, for you need to understand that faithful endurance in this world requires a joy that is not of this world. Faithful endurance in this world requires a joy that is not of this world. And so I will end with explaining the essence of this otherworldly joy you need to endure. And as my hope has been every week as we've worked through this letter to the Hebrews, my hope is that by God's power and by his holy word and spirit, you will again find grace to endure, knowing that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what then is the enemy to your endurance? Well, while this is not the only enemy to your endurance, one of your chief foes to enduring is the fear of suffering. 
And this was at least one of the enemies tempting these Hebrew Christians to drift away from what they had heard, to neglect their great salvation, to fall away from the living God, and to fail to reach God's rest. In other words, the fear of suffering was sapping their strength, it was weakening their spiritual legs, and it was tempting them to stop running to God and instead to walk away from God. Now, maybe as you have sat through this series and you have heard multiple stern warnings which the author gave to these Hebrew Christians, maybe you have started to form a very negative perception of these Hebrews. Maybe you've thought, well, they need to hear these really harsh warnings because they were just a bunch of weak-willed, lazy Christians who had really small faith. Well, if that's how you think of these Hebrew Christians, then you do not have a fair or accurate perception of them. For as the author exhorts them to endurance, he's going to give them many examples of endurance to follow. We're going to hear many Old Testament examples in Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to point them to the greatest example there is in chapter 12 of Jesus Christ himself. But do you know who the first example he holds out to them is? It's themselves. He says, I want you to be like you. You are a great example of endurance that I want you to follow. He says in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word for hard struggle is, is for a, an intense athletic content contest. So what we see here is that the Hebrews, after they received the gospel, either immediately or relatively soon, experienced intense suffering. They were engaged in a conflict and spiritual contest. And what was this hard struggle with sufferings? Well, we see that they were publicly ridiculed. They were insulted and persecuted. Some of them were thrown in jail. Others had all of their material property stolen away from them, all because of their newfound faith. For we must remember that to be separated from the world is now to become the enemy of the world. To forsake rebellion against God is to embrace rebellion against the devil. And so the world and the devil will come after you when you swear allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I believe this is an important reminder. It reminds us to give special care and attention to newborn Christians in our midst. Just like we give special care and attention to our newborn babies who are helpless and they need us to watch over them. It is not uncommon following conversion to face a severe crisis. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you, do you get that? The devil spends his time wandering around this world just looking for life that he can snuff out. And he especially hates the new breath of Christian life. 
The devil's like a man on a maternity ward who gets so angry every time he hears a new baby cry that he's walking around wanting to smother it. That is what your enemy is trying to do right now. And so we need to be on guard. We need to be watchful, as Peter tells us. We, therefore, as we see our children make professions of faith, as we, by God's grace, see college students coming to faith, or or anyone that comes and hears the gospel and turns to Christ, or even as we experience moments of significant growth and maturation, we need to be on guard because I can promise you suffering is, is nipping at our heels. It's the way it works. And we don't want ourselves or anyone to be surprised by the fiery trial. From the beginning, suffering was a component of the Hebrews' Christian experience because suffering is a component of all Christian experience to varying degrees. See, conversion to Christ is carrying the cross. It is denying and dying to yourself. Trials will come. Affliction will come. You better believe persecution will come. To be a Christian is by definition to share in the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's one of the things Jesus is teaching his disciples as he's preparing to leave. Is, Do you know how the world felt about me, disciples? That the world hated me, so you better believe it's going to hate you too. And so if you are driven, if your primary motivation in life is a fear of suffering and your goal is, I want to avoid suffering at all all costs, then you are not going to last long in the Christian life. Now there's, of course, a natural and appropriate fear of suffering. No one should seek out suffering for its own sake. Suffering is, by definition, unnatural. Pleasant. So if you find pleasure in suffering itself, then there's something wrong with you. So, what I mean by the fear of suffering is that the desire to avoid pain has become your ultimate desire and the primary goal of your life. And this kind of fear means you no longer worship the God of all comfort, but you now worship comfort as your God. Your comfort, not Christ, is your goal and your God. And I believe American Christians are especially, though certainly not exclusively, susceptible to this form of idolatry. We desire and we demand ease. We will not tolerate any disruptions to our life. Whatever we want, whatever we need, we expect to receive it immediately. That's been our experience. And so we have erected temples and altars in our hearts, offering sacrifices to the gods of safety and earthly security. So a lot of times I, I hear Christians speaking, and it, I, I don't think how they think and feel is actually informed by being a Christian. It's more formed by being an American. We dominate. We win. That's how we live in this world. That's not actually how we live in this world. 
If worldly safety, ease, and freedom from all pain and unpleasantness is the God you fear and serve, then you will not endure in faith when following Christ is hard. And again, I can promise you because Jesus promised you it's going to get hard. You will not remain at your post and hold your line on the battlefield when you see the enemy charging at you. Instead, you will give up, you will lay down your arms, and you will withdraw. You'll shrink back. And yet the author reminds the Hebrews that they didn't shrink back. They endured the hard struggle with sufferings. They freely gave their possessions, their food, their clothing to those who were in prison. They identified with them. They didn't forsake them. And when others came to take their, their possessions, they said, okay, take it. You, you can have it. And so the author simply reminds them how they had stood and endured God's grace in the past. Which is a good reminder for us that when we are trying to exhort one another, when we are languishing, that we ought to encourage each other to look back at past evidences of God's grace in our lives. See, so often we, we look ahead at the prospect of future suffering and we think, I, I could not possibly endure that. That would be the end of me. I'd, I'd be done. One of the antidotes, therefore, is to look back and see, you know, I actually have endured suffering. I didn't think I could. And in this way, we are encouraged that the God who sustained us then is the same God who is sustaining us right now. And he will sustain us then too. If he preserved us in the past, certainly he can and will preserve us in the future. But at the same time, remembering the pain of past persecution or affliction can actually be what drives our fear of going through it again. Because now we, it, it's not just a hypothetical pain. We actually know what it felt like, and it was not pleasant. I believe that's what the Hebrews were wrestling with. Yes, they had endured a hard struggle with sufferings in the past, but now they were incredulous that they were probably going to have to face that again. Perhaps they were hoping that the hard part of the Christian life was over. They had passed the test. How could God ask them to lose it all again? Have you ever had experiences where you think that was really hard? Yes, I am thankful that I went through it, but I don't ever want to go through it again. I have. Reading between the lines, I think that's how the Hebrews were feeling as they were probably facing the prospect of even greater persecution than they had faced to date. And this is one of the challenges of the Christian life. We are not called to face one kind of trial one time. We are called to face trials, plural, of varying kinds. When one trial ends, it's just a matter of time before the next one begins. And this can discourage us, can it? I think of mothers going through childbirth. I've watched my wife, who is far stronger than I am, go through this four times, having to push through contractions over and over again. 
I remember watching her exhausted as the, the doctor would be encouraging, got to keep pushing. And she would painfully push through the contraction. And when it would end, she would fall back exhausted. And yet she was not given time to just rest. The doctor would be then calling, you got to get up. You got to do this again. The next one's coming. And as contraction after contraction came, I could just see it on her face thinking, I can't do another one. And yet she did. That's why we have four wonderful children. Turns out, I think it gets harder after they're born than getting them out. The accumulation of afflictions like contractions can tempt us to want to just stop pushing. Yes, we endured before, but we're, we're more afraid now in one sense to have to do it again. So Christian, you have need of endurance and you must overcome this enemy to your endurance. You must fight the fear of suffering and like Gideon cut and cast down the altars in your heart to the idols of ease and safety, of comfort and prosperity. But what is the key to this endurance that will help you cast down the, these idols and have God sit once again upon the throne of your heart? Well, I believe in this text, we see that the key is an otherworldly joy. At the end of chapter 10, the author quoting from Isaiah 26, 20 and Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4, again warns the Hebrews against shrinking back, which is just another way to describe spiritual apostasy, falling away from faith in God, failing to finish the race. And he quotes these Old Testament texts and he reminds them that the righteous live by faith and that those who fail to persevere in faith will on the day of Christ's return see that Christ has no pleasure in them. For God does not delight in those who shrink back. But then the author confidently declares, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Yes, we need to be warned against this, but that's not us. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Don't you want to be part of that? We. I want to be part of that number. I want to be one of those who have faith and preserve their souls, who don't shrink back when Satan tempts and when the world ridicules. I want to be like Polycarp who in the first century AD, when, when he was tried by the Romans and he was told, we'll set you free if you just reproach Christ, responded, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when he was threatened with wild animals and fire, he replied, bring forth what thou wilt. I want to be like the wives of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and the others that when they heard that their husbands had all been killed bringing the gospel to the Alcas, didn't gather together to rage against the God who took them, but gathered together to sing their favorite hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. Don't you want to be that kind of person? 
Well, Christian, the author of Hebrews tells you, you are that kind of person. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's who we are. But that's who we are only when we possess an otherworldly joy. Look at verse 34. When the author says of the Hebrews, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So that, that phrase just hit you like a ton of bricks. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And you may wonder, how can anyone possibly suffer loss with joy, yet the Bible is full of this incomprehensible language? James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Paul says of the Thessalonians, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Paul describes Christians as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. The Bible describes joy in the midst of trials, afflictions, and sorrows in this world. Because this joy is not of this world, which means nothing in the world can destroy or diminish it. And so this is the kind of joy that you need to endure in this world. This is also, I would say, the kind of joy you actually need to be an effective witness to this world. You see, even though the world hates you, your job is still to love the world and witness to the world of the love of Jesus Christ. I, I heard some wonderful preaching this, the, the last week when I was in Mississippi, and Ligon Duncan at one point says, the Christian's posture to the world is, world, you cannot hate me enough to get me to stop loving you. And I think this world, otherworldly joy is one of the main ways we witness to this world. I remain adamantly convinced that the greatest witness of Christ to and in this world is not when Christians gain earthly power and prosperity. It is when they suffer great loss in this world and they do it with joy. And that's what points this world to a surpassing power. You believe Christ rules, that he reigns over all things? Well, I believe that rule and power is most fully manifested, not when Christians win every vote and control every government, but when they lose everything and they still bow down to praise the God who took it from them. That's how you witness to this world. You tell me, was God's glory, was his surpassing worth and value most clear to Satan when Job worshipped God in plenty? Or did Satan finally shut up when he saw Job lose everything and bless the God who took it? That's the kind of witness that will silence even the devil. And that's the kind of witness we're called to in this world. The world is left to wonder when Christians face persecution and death with unshakable, unshrinkable joy, and they sing with Martin Luther, let 
goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Do you want to know when Christianity spread through the Roman Empire like wildfire? It's when the Romans kept setting fire to Christians, and they couldn't get them to shrink back. I heard an example of this recently in light of the shooting at Covenant Presbyterian Church and school in Nashville. I don't know how he did it, but the pastor who lost his nine-year-old daughter gave the eulogy for his daughter at her funeral. And as he expressed joy and trust in his God in the midst of this unshakable tragedy, one observer reported, he was the strongest, most vital expression of Christianity I have ever seen. He said, I've been distant from the church for years now. But seeing that man get up and eulogize his nine-year-old daughter who was killed just a hundred or so feet from the pulpit made me instantly realize what Christianity offers on a visceral level. This man was so powerfully moved by the response of a Christian man who lost his daughter and yet would not shrink back from his faith in the God who took her. Christian, that's who we are. We are of those who don't shrink back. But you may say, I, I don't feel like that's who I am. I'm really afraid of suffering. Honestly, so am I. So how do we get this otherworldly joy? What is it? What's its essence? Well, there are two parts to it. Number one, otherworldly joy looks to and prizes a heavenly treasure. That's what it is. It is looking to and prizing a heavenly treasure. Notice why the Hebrews joyfully accepted the plundering of their earthly property. It's not because they didn't like their earthly property. It's since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The contrast is clear. The Hebrews were able to happily let go of temporary earthly possessions because they knew they had a permanent heavenly possession. They had something better which nobody could take away from them. They had a heavenly treasure. You may wonder, why do, why do I call this a treasure? Because chapter 11 is going to give you a bunch of examples of what this faith and otherworldly joy looks like. And if you skip ahead to chapter 11, verse 27, it says of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. In other words, he could give away Egyptian treasures because he had a better treasure. And what is this heavenly treasure? Well, the author of Hebrews has called it by many names. This 
better and abiding possession, this heavenly treasure is God's eternal rest. It is our great salvation. It's the promises of a better covenant. It's the world to come. It's an eternal redemption and inheritance. It is the better country that is a heavenly one. It is an unshakable kingdom. These are all describing the same reality, but ultimately that reality is to have and be with Christ for all of these spiritual blessings are found in one place and that is in Christ. As John Owen says, Christ is the treasury wherein the Father disposes all the riches of his grace. If your joy, if your hope, if your treasure is this world or anything in this world, I am telling you, it is the wrong hope, joy, and treasure. To think this world is it for you, that's not the gospel. That means you're losing the gospel. And it will not sustain you through affliction. For I am telling you that everything in this world not only can be lost, it will be lost. And when you lose what you love most, you will lose your joy. But if your joy is fixed upon a treasure that is found outside this world, then no matter what you lose in this world, you will never lose what you love most and you will never lose your joy. This is why Jesus commands, commands, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Christian may joyfully suffer loss in the world because no matter what he loses, he will never lose his greatest treasure. Imagine that there's a, a jeweler who has a store just full of beautiful pieces of jewelry. But his, his greatest jewel, which is worth a million times more than all the other jewels combined, is kept safe in a separate location. Well, then if he hears the report that his store has been robbed and everything has been emptied, he will experience some sorrow, but he will also rejoice. Why? Because he knows his greatest jewel is still safe. Why? Because it wasn't in the store. So it doesn't matter what was taken. That's still safe. Christian, your greatest treasure is not in this world, which means your joy is not tied to this world. The psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist says, says elsewhere, you, God, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. So, so what if they take their wine and their grain? Your source of joy is still there. And so you must train your heart to treasure Christ above all else. How? By communing with him. 
I don't know how you fall in love with and treasure what you don't know and have never experienced. The psalmist tells you to taste and see that the Lord is good. You cannot know the goodness of food you've never tasted. You cannot know the goodness of a God you have never experienced. And therefore, you must put yourself where God says he will be. That's how you train your heart to treasure him. You put yourself where he says, that's where I meet with my people. So you place yourself on your knees before the Lord in prayer. You place yourself before God's word in constant study. You place yourself in corporate worship every Sunday. You place yourself in the context of Christian fellowship as much as you can. You place yourself where the sacraments of God are being rightly administered because God has said, that's where you will experience me. Otherworldly joy has a heavenly treasure which is why it cannot be touched by earthly loss. Second and finally, otherworldly joy understands the good and the gain of earthly loss. It has an otherworldly treasure that it doesn't matter what it loses. It also understands that to lose comes with good and gain. The Christian suffers loss because he understands with joy, because he understands something good is actually happening in the midst of something bad. Affliction, then, by God's grace, does not steal your joy. It actually serves your joy. How? How can I possibly say that affliction is for your good and has gain? Well, in Thomas Watson's little book, All Things for good, he actually gives you 10 ways that affliction is for your good. I'm just going to give you two. First, affliction works for your good because affliction is a very good teacher. It teaches you about sin, about yourself, about God. It teaches you how to understand God's word. Martin Luther once commented that he just could not understand some of the Psalms until he started suffering. If you want to better understand God's word, I hate to tell you, you need to suffer. You need to suffer more than you need a seminary education or to learn ancient Greek and Hebrew. I've experienced this myself. There are just passages that have opened up when I read them in the midst of intense sorrow. Watson says, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. He's right. Charles Spurgeon likewise said, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. So it works for your good because it is a good teacher. Second affliction works for your good because it loosens your heart from the world. 
You see, too often, even our converted hearts keep sending roots deep down into this world, tethering us to it. And so we need affliction like a spade to loosen the soil and uproot us once again. For as God works in your suffering, he is actually working to keep you separated from the world and guard you from falling in love with it again. And this is a great mercy that guards you for your heavenly treasure. You see, your heavenly treasure needs to be guarded for you, and you need to be guarded for your heavenly treasure. But the greatest good of affliction is that it actually serves your gain, meaning it is a means by which God actually helps you gain your greatest treasure. Watson goes so far as to say that affliction works for our good because it makes us happy. And again, you may be thinking, how could it make us happy? Well, he says it makes us happy as it brings us closer to God. He says the magnet of mercy does not draw us so near to God as the cords of affliction. When God brings a deluge of affliction upon us, then we fly to the ark of Christ. Faith can make use of the waters of affliction to swim faster to Christ. And so I ask you again from your own experience, have you ever prayed as often or as fervently as when you're suffering? Have your meals in God's word ever been as regular and nourishing as when you are going desperately to feast upon Christ? You see, affliction not only separates us from the world, it actually sends us running back to Christ. And so the greatest good of earthly loss is that it helps us gain our heavenly treasure. These slight momentary afflictions, as Paul says, are actually preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. You could even say they are producing the eternal weight of glory. As an instrument in God's hand, suffering takes the world with one stroke, but it gives you Christ with the other. And if losing the world is how you gain Christ, then you better believe this loss is gain. At least that's how Paul thought about it. When he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Christian, you do not suffer with joy because you believe suffering is pleasant. You suffer with joy because you know suffering is purposeful. And that purpose is to give you the surpassing worth of Christ, which is a greater treasure than all the pleasures of this world combined. And so faithful endurance in this world requires a joy that is not of this world, because that joy cannot be lost and so it gives us strength to endure and keep running, knowing that losing the world is worth it. You will not throw away your confidence, as the author commands in verse 35, when you really understand that there is a great reward. Indeed, it is the greatest reward. 
And I promise you that after one moment with Christ in heaven, you will bless the Lord for everything he did to bring you to that moment, including all of the suffering he ordained. As Samuel Rutherford once wrote, our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. So Christian, know that your suffering will bring you to Christ, but also know that Christ is the one who will bring you through all of your suffering, whatever it may be, whenever it may be. He is worth all your suffering and he is with you in all of your suffering. So know that even though the Lord has promised affliction, he has also promised his abiding presence and an abiding possession. So whenever you begin to feel burdened beyond your strength, when you feel that you cannot run one more inch in faith or bear one more ounce of sorrow and pain, remember these words that Rutherford wrote to a woman who had just lost most of the children that she had borne. He said, if ye and your burdens were as heavy as ten hills or hells, he is able to bear you and to save you to the uttermost. That last phrase ought to sound a little bit familiar, having gone through Hebrews. For we remember when the author wrote, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it is precisely because Christ always lives for us and with us that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would draw near to us right now with the Spirit of Christ, that you would impress upon us a sense of your presence, knowing you really are with us. Pray that you would help us know that your word is true. Help us know that you are a good God who is always working for our good. We pray that you would give us the grace we need not to shrink back, but to keep believing, to keep persevering, to keep running, and to keep fighting. Lord, I feel in light of this word, maybe how some others feel, where we cry out, I believe, help my unbelief, help our unbelief right now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.